of our series that looks at the coronavirus pandemic and its continuing impact on the art community. It's been quite a week in the city as we're bracing for what could be the deadliest period in New York's efforts to control the outbreak. All this is happening as we're starting to hear good news from Spain and Italy, where the pandemic appears to be showing signs of slowing. And in Wuhan, China, which was the first epicenter for the virus, life is returning to some level of normalcy, as the lockdown that began at the end of January has finally been lifted. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperlogic. And I'm joined in the first half of this episode by our news team for an update on the biggest stories of the week. And then I'll bring together three staff members to talk about the current boom in online spaces as physical galleries remain closed. First up, I'm joined by editor Jasmine Weber in Los Angeles, reporter Valentina Delicia in Miami, and reporter Hakeem Bashara here in Brooklyn. Jasmine will get us up to speed. So this week, we've seen a number of developments in the museum world. We've been following it closely. One museum, the Indianapolis Contemporary, has had to close its doors because of the coronavirus pandemic. We've also seen a number of layoffs and furloughs at museums here in Los Angeles, where I am writing out the coronavirus. We've seen at the Museum of Contemporary Art, nearly all of its full-time employees have been furloughed. That is an update on last week. It laid off 97 of its part-time employees. This is not the first museum to have resorted to these layoffs. We've seen a great deal of criticism for these extremely wealthy museums who have, in some cases, billion-dollar endowments letting go of these precarious workers. In the case of MoCA in L.A., Their annual operating budget is around $20 million. And one thing that the Los Angeles Times noted in its coverage about the furloughs is that it isn't funded by a wealthy benefactor like some other museums have been in the past. I'd like to hear from Valentina. There in New York, we've seen a number of similar stories, particularly egregious at the Museum of Modern Art and Whitney Museum. Thanks, Jasmine. So one of the big related news we heard last week was that the Whitney's director, Adam Weinberg, sent an email to staff announcing that the museum projects a shortfall in revenue of around $7 million due to the closure because of the coronavirus pandemic, and it has decided to lay off 76 of its staff. Now, Weinberg said that the staff that was laid off was primarily temp staff, was primarily visitor services department. He argued that those staff could not necessarily do their jobs while the museum remains closed. Of course, workers are coming out to say, that's not fair. Everybody should be supported. Everybody should be paid, especially during such difficult times. He also said that the staff that was laid off has been at the Whitney Museum for two years or less. So although we weren't able to confirm exactly who was included in the layoffs, we have a sense that people who have been at the museum for a long time who might have already have a certain job security were not affected. 
So again, we're seeing this trend of workers that were already precarious, that were already vulnerable, being the most affected. Then another big thing we reported on last week was in line with that, the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA in New York City, has decided to terminate its education contracts. So these contracts were, they were freelance educators, freelance museum educators, which is a subject we really hone in on here at Hyperallergic. We have heard, although again, the museum was not able to confirm the exact number of contracts that were terminated, we have heard internally that it was around 50 staff. So again, these educators were not employees at the museum. They were freelancers, they were contractors. And the museum's argument was, well, public schools are closed and we don't necessarily foresee that we'll be able to have the operating budget anytime in the near future to continue employing these freelancers. Um, again, those workers that were already feeling a little bit shaky before that pandemic, now we're seeing just a very abrupt um, loss of their employment. So, Valentina, I have a question. Um, because education departments, of course, are some of the most important parts of museums. How common is it that such a large number of their employees are freelance versus staff? And is that true of most institutions? I mean, what has some of your conversations and research shown? So this is interesting. Um, and again, I'm going to be speaking casually about this. I don't have any hard numbers on me, unfortunately, Hrag, but I will tell you what I've heard in my conversations with some of these educators. Most have said that they find themselves always in these freelance slash contractor situations, that it's very rare for museums to employ them, even as part-time staff. One educator told me that she believes that Guggenheim employs educators as staff rather than freelancers. I have also heard that some museums do a mix. So museums do have education departments where they have staff, just to clarify, they'll have admins, they'll have public program coordinators, they'll have managers and directors in those departments. But in terms of the people actually coming in and leading the tours, in terms of the people creating the curricula and working directly with public schools, it seems to be that the trend is to hire them as freelancers. And that it's actually quite common as a practice. That's really interesting because I think we've seen similar things with security guards and other aspects of the museum over the years, increasingly becoming freelance based. Exactly. And one thing I'd actually like to add, Valentina, if you want to touch on it super quickly, is this idea of these enormous museum endowments not necessarily being available for these museums to access. I know that that's a story that you've been doing a lot of research on and speaking to a lot of experts, so our readers can learn more about that later this week. But if you want to give us a little bit of an understanding and insight into why a museum like MoMA that has a $1 billion endowment doesn't necessarily have $1 billion in funds that it can pull from, I think that that would help a lot of people understand the situation. Sure. This has been a really fascinating story to work on. Basically, I wanted to get some clarity for myself, but also for our readers about what exactly endowments are and why a large endowment doesn't necessarily mean that the entirety of the endowment principle is available for use. 
So basically what I've learned is endowments are composed of investment funds. Sometimes they're reported as such on financial statements. So instead of reporting on endowments, you'll see the line item investment funds on a 990 form or other financials. When a museum pulls from their endowment, they're basically shaving off the amount of the principal that they can reinvest. Another part of this is endowments are actually really regulated, both by government and by an institution's board. So just because an endowment is a total of $1.9 billion doesn't mean that all those funds are available for use. They're usually divided into restricted and unrestricted funds. And some museums, you know, will say, well, we'll pull off 5% or 4% from the endowment every year. And that's kind of their max in the sense that, you know, you yes, you can pull from the endowment, but it's very heavily regulated and calculated. And in the case of a, an unprecedented situation like the coronavirus pandemic, having to increase the percentage that you pull from your endowment means having to rebalance all your financials. So this isn't to completely exonerate institutions that are choosing to lay off staff or not pay their workers, but it is at least to add a level of nuance to our conversation. I think one interesting direction in which this research has taken me is it's less maybe about endowments and it's more about other forms of surplus spending that institutions are partaking in. For example, why is, you know, MoMA's president earning over a million dollars? So I think Questions like that, questions about how certain staff is compensated and other staff isn't, might give us, again, a little bit more nuance than just, you know, quoting or citing a large endowment number that may not be fully accessible. That, that's great reporting, Valentina. I look forward to your article. Thanks, Rog. It's, it's really been super exciting to work on this. I'm completely nerding out, I have to say. Jasmine, I have a question for you. I feel like, you know, you've been like me, sort of a little bit of an eagle eyes view of what's going on with different museums. You know, one of the things that I've been really surprised by is, you know, I don't understand why these education departments can't transition, you know, with the online learning in the same way that other schools and institutions have transitioned. Now, what are some of the things you've been observing that you think are notable? I think that the the clear disregard for museum education has been really sad for me to see. I think that it's like all of the departments in museums, an extremely vital resource for the collection to interface with the public. I think that one thing that I've noticed is that these departments are clearly existing in a hierarchy, no matter what any administrator tries to say. The visitor services are clearly the first to go, um, and educators are clearly also in similarly precarious positions. It's clear that so much of museum education relies on freelance work, which is another disappointing reality about the field, the way that these educators are devalued and not given benefits, despite how incredibly important they are to the museum's function on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that one thing that I've seen many people pointing out on social media and in my circles is that museum education is one of the easiest platforms to translate online. There are so many ways that you can bring the museum to people at home, especially kids who are visual learners and who really might be able to benefit from an online curriculum. We've seen lots of museums putting digital tours online, digital gallery walkthroughs, which are really incredibly helpful. And I think that a lot of these museums could really benefit from having their education department create online curriculums that people can teach their kids or teach themselves 
from home while the museums are closed. And I hope that a lot of museums take that initiative to start creating those programs. That's a really good point. I think what I've been also seeing is the fact that a lot of institutions seem to be taking the same attitude we saw 10 years ago when it came to online, where before it was sort of people just did the same thing offline and then just put it online. And the same way, a lot of these resources that are being put online, it does feel like they're not being sensitive to the environment online and how they can like stage them differently using educators. Or even the fact that the next three months, it would be great if these educators worked on new curriculum that reflects the reality we're facing now and will answer some of the questions students and others may have. So it's really upsetting to me to see the fact that the education departments appear to be some of the most devalued when I really do believe they do some of the most innovative work in institutions like MoMA, the Whitney, and elsewhere. So I think that's a really good point. Thanks so much, Jasmine. Absolutely. There's a great deal of potential in what museum educators can accomplish through these digital initiatives. And I really hope that they realize what they're capable of. Hakeem, you've been reporting on a number of stories this week. Do you want to give us a little sense of what you've been finding? Well, I've been very eager to report on positive stories during these uh, difficult and depressing days. So I'll start with a heartwarming story about museums, large and small, from all over the world, sharing medical-themed art and archival footage as a tribute to healthcare workers who are on the front lines of the pandemic. You have everything from photos and famous paintings of nurses and doctors to images of medical uniform and equipment. And those museums are sharing those uh, images under the hashtag Museums Thank Health Heroes. And we uh, gathered together a selection of our favorite tributes, which you can see on our article. The second story is the story of Jessia Hopper, a middle school teacher from Fargo in North Dakota, who started uploading drawing tutorials for her eighth grade student in 2015, much before, you know, art classes and video tutorials became popular and essential today. And before she knew, back in 2015, those videos went totally viral on YouTube, gaining hundreds of thousands of subscribers to her channel and millions of views to her videos. Her most popular video is How to Draw a Nose. It received over 3 million views. <laughs> and we talked to Jessica about how she's dealing with the quarantine today and how she's interacting with her students through live streaming on YouTube. She has those uh, quarantine editions of her tutorials, and she's also advising our teachers today who are trying to find ways, both technically and, you know, in terms of subject matter and how to deliver those courses online to their students through Zoom and other mediums. So you also reported on the 1918 flu pandemic, which is, you know, something we've been hearing a lot about during this pandemic, because it was the last uh, maybe equivalent global crisis that caused such chaos. And in that case, it was during World War One. You had contrasted them with the images. And what did you learn from looking at the images from that pandemic over 102 years ago? Yeah, that was the largest pandemic in history until today. It infected about a third of the world population, and it killed more than 50 million across the globe. So oh, what's uh, most striking is the similarity between images back then and today. You have uh, mass-clad essential workers and healthcare workers. You have mass images of empty streets and mass quarantine. You have field hospitals. What's most interesting, in fact, from that article, that unlike today, the U.S. actually led the world in mask wearing, making it mandatory in many states. 
which is vastly different from the situation today. Wow. So, so everyone was mandated to wear masks in the United States. Yeah, it was illegal to leave the house without a mask. That's, uh, that's uh, uh, something that started in San Francisco in October of uh, 1918, and then it was adopted by other states. We also cite from uh, studies that show how lockdown in cities like Minneapolis and Los Angeles in 1918 proved to be not only effective in lowering the mortality rates, but also in speeding up the economic recovery of those areas after the pandemic ended. So that's a lesson to learn today for all those remaining states in the U.S. that still haven't instituted a lockdown. That's really interesting. Thanks for that, Hakeem. Now, Jasmine, there's also a little bit of a distressing story coming out of Santa Fe, where the Indian market seems to be delaying this year, or they canceled it. Can you get us a sense of what's going on? Yeah, so sadly, the Santa Fe Indian market has been hit hard by COVID-19. It was planned for August 15th and 16th of this summer, and they've had to push it back until 2021. They were going to be celebrating their centennial in 2021, which is now moved to 2022. We have our Southwest reporter, Ellie Duke, working on a story and speaking to the local community and local artisans who make so much of their living off of the Indian market. It brings over 150,000 people to the city from around the world, and it's a really highly anticipated event. It's incredibly important for Indigenous artists in the United States, and especially in the Southwest, of course. And it's a really sad development in terms of the many, many events that have been pushed back, canceled, or postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, as somebody who's actually had the uh, privilege of attending the Santa Fe Indian Market, it really is such an amazing gathering of different kinds of creativity. So it's really sad to see. And many people may not know, but the Santa Fe is arguably the second or third largest art market in the United States, you know, and the Indian Market is a good chunk of that. So, you know, you could only imagine how it's going to impact, you know, different craftspeople on reservations and other indigenous art spaces throughout the country. So it is a very sad and I hope they I hope they come up with an online way so that people can still connect to the makers. So, Valentina, you're also talking about different relief efforts. Do you want to give us a sense of what some foundations are doing? So we reported on three quite major relief efforts that were announced last week. And what I really thought was interesting was seeing the different approaches. So there is a sense right now that artists need money immediately. So we're seeing a lot of direct relief and we're also seeing a lot of support for organizations and institutions. So the three big efforts I reported on were the Warhol and Frankenthaler and Getty relief programs. And just to give you a sense of how different these are, you have the Getty Trust COVID Relief Fund, which will distribute 10 million to small and mid-sized LA-based nonprofits. So that's very regional. The grants will range between 25,000 to 200,000. And again, that'll really just be focused on LA and those museums and arts nonprofits that are struggling there. Meanwhile, the Frankenthaler Foundation has launched three-year, $5 million relief effort with the first round that I believe is already in motion and totals around $1.25 million. And what they've done is they've created three buckets. So $500,000 will go to the Foundation for Contemporary Arts Relief Fund. 
And then $500,000 will go to direct grants to artists that will launch in the coming weeks. And then the remaining $250,000 will be distributed to cover operating costs at different New York City organizations that are focused specifically on the work of living artists, which seems to be a focus of the Frankenthaler Foundation. So just to give you an idea of the kind of the mix and the the getting creative and separating funds into buckets that's really going on. And bringing up again our Southwest editor, Ellie Duke, she reported that there's a museum in Albuquerque called 516 Arts that will be using its Warhol Foundation grant to support emergency relief for local artists that have been affected by the crisis. So that's an example of a different approach. The Warhol Foundation is, they're taking this regranting program is what they call it. So people that are already, organizations that are already receiving grants from the Warhol Foundation are now authorized to shift the focus of those grants to COVID relief. So in the case of this museum in Albuquerque, that money was being used to support contemporary arts projects that fall outside of traditional funding sources. And now it's going to be uh, given to local artists directly. So it's been interesting to see just how creative we get in the middle of a crisis. And it's been kind of inspiring, honestly. That's great. I agree. It has been quite inspiring. And as we're recording this, I should just mention that China has just officially ended the lockdown on Wuhan, which is an industrial hub of 11 million people. So hopefully that, you know, demonstrates that, you know, all this will end too, stateside. So a little bit of good news. And like Hakeem said, we are trying to report on stories that are somewhat maybe inspiration or give us some hope in the midst of this. And this week, we also reported about a couple in London who built a little gerbil museum or a museum for their gerbils called the Gerbil Museum, I should say, which was a very adorable little endeavor that included gerbil renderings of the Mona Lisa, Edvard Munch's The Scream, Klimt's The Kiss, and others. So, you know, we have some uh, little inspiring stories as well. And Jasmine, you also wrote a story this week about a postage stamp um, that I think some of us are very much looking forward to. Yeah, one thing that we can all look forward to when this situation passes is the U.S. Postal Service releasing Rufasawa stamps. They feature photographs of her wire sculptures, and they're absolutely beautiful. I would recommend that everyone take a look at them just because her works work really successfully in that miniature format, and they're really delicate and gorgeous. They also come on a, a sheet that depicts photo of Asawa drawing out a sketch for one of the sculptures that was featured in 1954's In One Edition of Life magazine, photographed by Nat Farbman. The official launch date hasn't been announced, but I can only imagine that people will be scrambling to buy them when they're released. Really a nice addition to the mundane day-to-day tasks. Absolutely. I haven't been so excited about a stamp since the Ellsworth Kelly stamps came out a little while ago. So (laughs) this is great. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you to the best news team in art for giving us an update of what's going on with COVID-19 in the art world. So thanks, all. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Now I get to talk about something I've really been enjoying. Ovid, spelt O-V-I-D dot TV, which is an online streaming service for some of the best indie films and documentaries from leading distributors in the field. The service just turned one, and they already have almost a thousand films in their collection. 
Not to mention they're adding new selections on art, design, architecture, dance, and other topics every week. This past weekend, I watched Isaac Julian's beautiful and moving 1995 film Franz Fanon, Black Skin, White Mask, which is a look at philosopher and psychiatrist Franz Fanon and his influential work on race, colonialism, and power. And I really enjoyed discovering Tanya Rachmanova's complex portrait of Russia's new class of contemporary art collectors called simply Art and Oligarchs. Some of the other new additions at Ovid include documentaries on Bosch, David Hockney, and Picasso, and there's so much more. Use code HYPERALLERGIC for 25% off your first four months. Then it's just $6.99 a month. So visit Ovid, O-V-I-D dot TV, and use the code HYPERALLERGIC. Museums and galleries are closed in New York, but most of them have been upgrading their online offerings in some way. Whether it's online exhibitions, tours, drawing classes, interview series, or free access to years of catalogs, they're all clamoring for online attention. So I invited hyperallergic editor and critic Seth Rodney, review editor Dazan Lopez Cassell, and news editor Jasmine Weber to talk about what works online and what doesn't. What are some of our personal favorites? And why did it take a pandemic to shift so much material online? So, Seth, I wanted to ask you first and foremost about what it was like being a critic walking into these spaces. You seem to have a lot to say in your article that people can check out from March 25th that was titled, What It's Like to Visit Virtual Galleries as an Art Critic. Well, to be honest, it was a bit underwhelming. I feel that I wanted more of a kind of physical interaction with the objects and with the spaces. Although I appreciated having the opportunity to, in some ways, virtually leave my apartment, it still felt a bit like I was wandering in the desert. Um, the best experiences I had were probably with the Met Museum. As I said in my piece, I think that's because the Met has, a, the way they've laid out their 3D tours, they have a particular perspective. And you, one has to follow the camera as it kind of sweeps through the space or uh, takes a particular perspective in the Temple of Dendor with a kind of hyperlapse rendering of people moving through the space. I like that because it gave me a particular point of view and didn't just sort of let me wander aimlessly. Part of me was a little surprised, I have to say, that you preferred the tours that were more directed. But in many ways, it makes very much sense. Many people may not know your book that just came out last year, The Personalization of the Museum Visit, um, that they may want to check out from Rutledge. You know, I, I guess I agree with you in many ways, but my first instinct was that I prefer the opportunity, like any museum, to sort of wander and discover myself. But you're suggesting that that directed experience is much richer online. That's right. That's what I found. And I wandered through a variety of museums and gallery installations. So I went to the National Gallery website, a few galleries that I have written about and physically visited before, like Fergus McCaffrey and Sean Kelly. And 
those are, those experiences are just okay. And I should also mention IPCNY has a really great online platform in that the images of the exhibited pieces are really sharp and they have these small sort of blue dots indicating where one can place the cursor to get more information, title dimensions, materials used. That's all well and good, but I feel that when I negotiate a physical space by myself, I'm very much aware of my own agency and I can go where I please. But when I'm online and there's a sort of plethora of images available to me, I feel kind of lost. I feel like having that kind of agency to just go anywhere, it makes me feel like I could just wander about for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to have any sort of really rich experiences that way. Understood. And those who don't know, ICPNY is the International Center for Photography, if they want to check that out, of oh, course. Oh, sorry, I meant, no, actually I meant IPCNY, which is the International Print Center, New York. I see. Okay. Thanks for the correction, Seth. So we also have Dazan and Jasmine also on the line, and both of them had worked on a piece on virtual galleries. And I'd love to hear a little bit of what you guys discovered, like galleries to go digital. Is it a good idea? Yeah, I definitely agree with Seth that there's a little bit of a lacking experience, actually more than a little bit when it comes to experiencing a gallery digitally. What Dasan and I did was round up in the first few days, really, that first week of those critical social distancing recommendations when many people were finally working from home or beginning to take it seriously, despite the fact that there had been recommendations for a longer time, that week was really critical in terms of public awareness. We rounded up six galleries that had gone digital and timed it with the opening of the Digital Art Basel viewing rooms. I think that during this time, it's really critical for us to be engaged with art, but I definitely think that there is a bit of a lack when it comes to seeing it through the screen. There's a lot of issues with perspective in terms of trying to navigate the gallery and see the artwork at the same perspective that you would if you were walking into a gallery and into a museum. But what we did find is a lot of worthwhile work. One of the exhibitions that I highlighted with one of my blurbs was Josephine Mexper's Peleas at Timothy Taylor Gallery, which worked a bit more successfully because it was a video exhibition. It was a pretty satisfying to watch that from my own computer. To watch the video from this exhibition, a 42-minute film about Donald Trump's inauguration, it's extremely harrowing and essentially compares the inauguration to European fascism. That was a, obviously a, a more successful form than maybe some of the YouTube tours that we've been seeing. But at the same time, I will say one successful tour that I went on virtually was Prophets and Angels, Purvis Young and Edouard Viard at Shin Gallery. That is now closed, but it was actually a really interesting way to see Purvis Young's work. He's a Miami-born outsider artist, and they had a wall of his paintings created into this sort of makeshift collage. They were all individual paintings that were then hung on the wall together, and the texture and the detail really worked successfully on the online platform. Yeah, and I want to sort of add on to that and say that when we were looking at a lot of these, like, viewing rooms that were coming out around this time, I think 
One of the biggest things that struck me to sort of add on to what Jasmine is saying is the ways in which certain works do and don't lend themselves to be particularly successful in terms of how they're being exhibited in an online space. And I think Seth touched on this a bit as well in his piece, which is that for institutions like the Met that have these really significant production budgets, the experience of viewing work virtually can be really pleasant and can offer you an amount of detail and sort of insight into the physical object of the work that maybe you wouldn't be able to get as close to in person or or really can kind of give you this sort of optimal experience where the galleries are less crowded and you have all of these incredible sight lines that you maybe wouldn't have if you were walking in on an average day. But I think something that stood out to me in working on the piece that Jasmine and I did is is really looking at the ways in which that just doesn't always happen. Like, Jasmine, it's great to hear you talk about Josephine McSupper's work because I completely agree that it's it's really fitting to view a video work over the internet. And I felt similarly when I was looking at work that was also featured in the exhibition, How Can We Think of Art in a Time Like This, which is a online exhibition that was co-curated by Barbara Pollock and Enver Hallen. And it was something that really kind of sprung up right around the time when I think a lot of people were first turning towards viewing rooms online. And these curators were specifically thinking about the question that they pose in their title, which is, how can we think of art in this time like this, and really turning that on its head and pointing to the ways in which it's actually essential that we think of art at a time like this, when we are all feeling very stressed and taxed and many of us are really kind of confronting situations that we've never had to deal with before. So I think that asking these kinds of questions is really crucial. And this exhibition features a variety of works that are, some of which are works that we would traditionally view as two-dimensional and then some of them are works that are time-based or works that are three-dimensional. And so there's really kind of a range of experiences you can have on that platform. But another thing that I wanted to highlight was kind of like an older um, exhibition, but one that I, I continue to come back to, which is the Net Art Anthology that Rhizome produced. And I think that what's special about the show and, and the huge amount of scholarship that has come out of it is that it's specifically thinking about the internet as its environment. And it's thinking specifically about work that has been born digital. Rhizome is obviously an organization that is specifically dedicated to work that is born on the internet and that's really engaging with that ecosystem. And I think that what's really important to think about in this time as we have a lot of institutions and spaces that are turning to the digital route that wouldn't do that normally is that the internet isn't neutral. Like it isn't a neutral viewing condition. And I think that it's really important to recognize that there are certain experiences that unfortunately we just cannot have right now when it comes to how we engage with art. We can't have the physical experience of seeing a work in person and being able to physically move up close to it, to smell what the room is like, to feel the scale of our body in relation to an object. We don't have that ability right now. And so I think that some of the most successful presentations of work that I've seen are ones that don't try to replace that experience, but rather try to create something different altogether. And I think what Rhizome does with the way that they platform work that is made for the internet and the way that they focus on sort of enabling a huge amount of scholarship to come out about that is really important 
because we are now viewing art on the internet and that totally changes how we experience it. So why not reckon with that directly and think about what it means to encounter work in that setup rather than trying to sort of fight against it. And there are a few other um, spaces and galleries that I've seen that have been doing that really well. That's a great summary, Dazan. I really appreciate it. I also want to shout out the fantastic list you created on March 24th called Tired of Netflix Stream Experimental Films and Video Art. And one of the things that I loved about that, and I think a lot of people, at least in my world, has really been appreciating was, you know, people are disparaging the lack of physical spaces. But in this day and age, things like video art, you know, I've seen people circulating and sharing a lot of videos and different kinds of films. And that's been a really welcome break. Right. I do think that while having online platforms or having shows exhibited online give us the opportunity to look at net art and look at art that specifically takes its cues from electronic media, one of the things that I've noticed that really extends and expands the experience of visiting an exhibition online is what galleries have done in adding this sort of extra material, typically interviews with artists, conversations between the artists and curators, Q&As with artists. And I want to shout out a couple places that stood out to me. Gallery Lalong had a video on Ursula von Reidingsvod. Just a, it was a short video, I think it was less than two minutes, but it gave a little snapshot of her history, how her family was detained for five years in the post-World War II refugee camp. And video touches on what seems to be for her a really traumatic experience that she turned into us, fed, that fed into her work, making these monumental structures out of wood. I thought it was powerful. Um, I, Richard Tatinger also had a video that essentially gave us an insight into the artist's method and concerns with a chat with Francis Goodman, who comes out of South Africa and does a lot of work around feminist tropes and feminist or materials that are associated with, with femininity. And I honestly, when I first started looking at the video, my heart kind of sank because I saw it was 27 minutes long. But she started talking and I was entranced. Francis had a lot to say about how the sort of appurtenances of femininity work against and for women. And I found it fascinating. And there was another one. Oh yeah, the Bronx Museum of the Arts has an art studios set of videos, which are how-to videos, like how to make collages or how to draw graffiti. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. I have to say the guided tours didn't do it very much for me, because even though they attempted to sort of reveal a show um, in the way that one would sort of walk someone else through an exhibition. The voice that they use on a couple of the videos is not personal at all. It feels like, it sounds like they're reading a script and that's exactly not the way to do this. Whereas the, the version that they did with Andrea Bauer's show was better because they actually gave the microphone to real people to talk about their real experiences in the galleries, which opens up the exhibition for me. So what I'm essentially saying is that while the platforms exist uh, as a kind of surrogate experience of art. They also provide this window into this conversation that never really goes away from the art scene, which is, what is the artist's real intention? I think it, these kinds of videos kind of get at that 
and unpack what artists are thinking and working towards in a way that's really enticing to viewers. That's a great point, Seth. Thanks for that. Dazan, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I'll just say that I, I completely agree with that. I think that when galleries and spaces come from a place of of recognizing an experience that can't be created and instead are working to sort of supplement and build our knowledge of an artist's practice, I think that is the best thing that people can be doing. Like, I completely agree that it's now is really a great time to be publishing maybe scholarship or interviews or other things that are either related or were done directly by an artist that we maybe wouldn't have had access to normally or wouldn't have maybe had the same amount of bandwidth to really consume. I think that we're in this period where we're not going outside. A lot of us are who are privileged to not have to go outside are not doing that. And so we're in a space where a lot of us are feeling more contemplative. And I think that having the ability to learn more about, say, maybe an understudied period in an artist's life or a material they may have explored at one point or another is, is really valuable right now. And something I also want to sort of spotlight is to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier about this being a unique opportunity for doing things that we wouldn't normally be able to do, by we I mean spaces. I've been really pleasantly surprised to see, especially smaller spaces, kind of reckon with their bandwidth in terms of knowing that maybe producing a virtual tour is not the best use of their resources. And so instead, I've seen a lot of smaller spaces really focus on work that is made to be consumed over the internet. So another space that I think is doing really great work lately is Signs and Symbols, which is like a small Lower East Side gallery. And I was recently talking with their owner, Mitra Koreshe, about their program that they have coming up. Right now they have an exhibition focused on the video artists and or multidisciplinary artists, I should say, Jen Danike. And it's going to be going on until April 15th, and it's presenting one of her video works. And then the next one will be presenting work by Oriela Frieres, and that's going to be going until April 29th. And I think what's been exciting to me about Mitra's programming is seeing the way in which she has very consciously kind of suspended the normal programming that they had in the physical space of the gallery and have instead moved to focus on time-based media that they think really lends itself to this viewing experience and the recognition that we need to create something new. And then other shows that I've seen that I think are really successful, um, or maybe show is less of the appropriate term, but Amanda Wilkinson Gallery, which is a smaller gallery in London, has also been doing this very fun kind of like subscription-based show. It's completely free. All you have to do is sign up on their website. It's a sort of roving show that's called Images Disturbed by an Intense Parasite. And what you do is you sign up or you subscribe to it and every sort of week or so they send you the Vimeo link to a new work that you can view online. And it's usually a video work. In the past they've shown Joan Jonas's work, Derek Jarman's first film, Electric Fairy, was the featured film last week. And this week it's going to be Steve Ferrer, a film called Swinging London, which I just got the link for and I'm excited to check out. And then other spaces like Electronics Arts Intermex, EAI, um, which is an institution that I deeply love and have spent a lot of time going through their collection. They are also kind of partnering with another smaller space, 47 Canal, to present a selection of sort of video works and quote like video paintings 
by the artist Trevor Shimizu. And so again, they're really kind of thinking about like what uniquely lends itself to being experienced from the comfort of one's own home or on a screen, whether that's a big or a small one, and really thinking about how you can be strategic about that and how you can present work that is going to maybe resonate in a different way than it would otherwise. So it's been really heartening to see things like that. Great. Before we bring Jasmine in, Dazan, I have a question for you as somebody who's been particularly interested in video and film and curating that. Now, I've been actually having very good experience watching video during this quarantine because I often find it very difficult to watch in galleries. And I'm wondering what are some of the reactions you've been seeing or if you think this will have any impact in the way these things are being displayed or maybe even in the way how willing people are to give others access to their work online. I wonder if you've been seeing anything in terms of the conversation around that. Yeah, a lot of different conversations I've had kind of along those few different lines that you bring up. To just respond to the most recent one that you mentioned about like maybe the conversations that artists are having about whether or not now feels like the right time to give folks free access to their work online. I think especially when it comes to independent filmmakers or people who identify as makers of artists moving image or video art, I think it's a really complicated question because often if you're a filmmaker who shows your work primarily on the film festival circuit, you're dealing with a totally different model for how you get paid. And I think it's really important to discuss that. I think that if you're circulating your work primarily that way, you're really, really dependent on distribution. And so having free access to your work can sometimes create a lot of challenges to you being able to get paid for a screening or you being invited to give a talk about your work in which they'll screen it. And that being one of the ways in which you're able to to make your income as an artist. And I think that there are also a lot of other moving image makers who identify maybe more as video artists who may show their work on the film festival circuit, but are really primarily thinking about like their work being experienced in a physical space or in a gallery or sort of online, but being sort of sold as like what we'd call like additions or something like that. And I think that's a totally different model for supporting yourself and, and maybe being able to recoup your costs for your work because often you're making a lot more money, that work is being additioned, and so that limits the number of times in which it can be reproduced or even screened and and all of those things. So there's kind of a, there's a system that's more like what you would deal with if you were an artist who's making paintings, where you can sell your work and, and make some money off of it and support yourself. And I think that when it comes to releasing work online, I've had a lot of conversations with artists about why that maybe does feel like the right thing for them to do like short term and then they'll like put a password back on after this period is over and then i've also had a lot of conversations with artists about why that is definitely not a thing that they want to do and i think that that is also completely fair and i completely respect that because at the end of the day artists need to be protective of their livelihoods so there are a lot of really exciting things to be said for when work does go online. And I, as a curator myself, have found it really gratifying to be able to see this work that I would normally be encountering at a place like Union Docs or at BAM or at EAI in person. And it's been great to still have access to some of those works. But I also recognize that this is a period for me to do research and that's great and it will maybe inform my future programming. 
But for some people who maybe just want to see this thing this one time, they may be less inclined to pay to go to a screening of it and see it in the future in a context where the artist is is going to maybe be making some money. So I think to answer your question about what I hope will come out of this, I hope that other people also use this as an opportunity for learning about artists they maybe wouldn't have experienced or wouldn't have encountered otherwise and, and work they wouldn't have experienced. And I hope that people who would maybe spend more of their time consuming content from platforms like Netflix and Hulu will now be like more aware of the very vast and exciting world of experimental film and video art and artist moving image. And even better, I really hope that the people who do have platforms and do have the ability to either buy this work or program it or curate it or invite these artists to come and show their work, that they will do that after this period ends. Because that, at the end of the day, is the best way that we can support artists by exposing new audiences to their work and doing it in such a way where they're also being fairly compensated. So that's kind of what I'm hoping comes out of this, but we'll see. Great. Jasmine, we talked a few weeks ago, uh, or maybe it was even last week. I can't even keep track anymore. So much happens in a week nowadays during this uh, pandemic. We were talking a little bit about the hesitation, or at least some of the issues we saw, the fact that institutions and others were putting their stuff online so quickly, considering you know they hadn't done it for years and all of a sudden. I'm just curious, in the online galleries you've been visiting, if there are other things like that you'd been noticing, like in terms of the way they'd present it and who their intended audiences might might be, or just general observations you've had about online galleries in general? Yeah, so for our readers who might not have heard that previous conversation, your colleague, Lise Ragbeer, you had spoken to her about the fact that many of these museums had been pushing against putting much of their programming and so much of their information online, which is a way of gatekeeping access to people who might not be able to be present in the museum, whether or not it's because they live in a more remote location, whether or not they can afford the ticket prices, etc. And the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, while it's highlighting social inequality in so many ways in nearly every facet of society, it's it's doing the same thing in the art world. And we talk a lot about that in terms of what we see of, of museums laying off and furloughing and firing certain workers. But then we can also see that in the fact that this information was not considered a priority to put online until it affected the primarily wealthy audiences that were frequenting these museums. So that's a concern that I've been thinking a lot about is how we're going to maintain this access after the pandemic is over, when there is a vaccine and when we know what the aftermath is going to look like. I mean, I think you touched on this a little bit, Dasan, in terms of how we can make sure that we're supporting the most vulnerable populations during this time. And that's definitely something that I'd like to see museums focus on is how much of this online program are you you going to keep online? You're putting all of this effort and time into moving things into the digital space. And it's incredibly important for some of your patrons of the museum, people who would otherwise want to see this information and who want to learn about the museum. Is that access going to create another opportunity for the museum to open up permanently or are they going to put up another wall? Yeah, and I'm really I'm really glad you bring that up, Jasmine. I think that the issue of access is really crucial right now. 
And I think it's also important to acknowledge that the internet, as we have said, is also a, a form of privilege. Like to access a lot of this programming that has moved online, like you do have to have a reliable and a pretty robust internet connection to be able to access the huge amount of data that is being transmitted to be able to take in these like fantastic shows and, and video works and so on and so forth. But I think Jasmine, something that you hit on more acutely is the ways in which like these requests for access aren't new. Um, and I think that I know on my feed, I've seen a lot of artists with disabilities really kind of pointing to the fact that these these sort of methods of releasing work online or of making tours more accessible online for people who can't physically come into the institution or maybe feel less comfortable doing that or, or so on and so forth are not, are not new requests, you know? I think that people who are part of the disability justice community have really been calling for this level of institutional inward looking for a long time. And while it's exciting to see some of that finally happen, I really agree with what you're saying about the fact that there needs to be conversations about how we continue to facilitate this level of access once this pandemic is behind us, because we will continue to live in a society where the most vulnerable members of it experience the world completely differently. And I think that as this pandemic has shown us, they are often going to be the first to be impacted and the most severely impacted. So what are the ways in which we can kind of be mindful of that all year round through our programming and through various ways in which we make things accessible online and that includes not just having a video, but it also includes like having closed captions so that someone who identifies as hard of hearing or is part of the deaf community can also still experience certain components of the work or having image descriptions at the bottom of something that can then be read by certain software. There, There is a host of things that need to also come with just putting something online. It's, it's, it's not quite that simple. So I think that it's been exciting to see some of these conversations and I really hope that they will continue and also really deepen because we're kind of coming out of the first wave of like, let's put all these shows online and that's fantastic. But then what, you know, how do we continue the work of, of making this work accessible and actually engaging, you know, not just visible. On that note, thank you so much for adding your perspective and for guiding us through these, what feels like endless corridors of online galleries that we're seeing today. And thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you thank for you having so us. Much. A special thanks to Yute for letting us use his new track, Run. Check it out on Spotify and Apple Music. I'm Harag Bartanyan the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. In the run for the money, in the run for the fame, let it run in my blood, let it run in my veins. Cause all I wanna do is run. See wherever you go, there you are. Funny how much we know right from the start. We run until we fall apart.
Funny how much we know right from the start We run until we fall apart How we get this far, get this far 